about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I hope you've had a great day. It's so beautiful out there, isn't it? Just wonder of God's creation around there. It's amazing, actually, when you think about the creation of our world. Our earth is the right distance from the sun. Any closer and we would fry, any further away and we would freeze to death. Have you considered that? That's just amazing, isn't it? Sometimes I wonder whether this church is in the right place in terms of freezing to death and all that kind of thing, but it is just amazing design and amazing order that our world looks this way. Have you ever considered cells, for example? They seem to have got stuck. Got to click on it, Regina. Cells and looking at cells. Isn't it just remarkable that you can now look at a single cell and see what's involved there and the design of them and the way that they work and the the order involved in that? A God who can create the whole universe, place the earth in the right place to the sun, can also create this. He is really a God of order. Think about the spider's web. The spider creates that and it's a beautiful thing, of course, until you walk into it and that's a problem or you don't like spiders or something like that, but it is an amazing thing to consider. The order involved in that. We live in a remarkable world and God has ordered it in such a way with such beauty. And yet, of course, we also know that it's a world in which there is disorder, in which there is great difficulty and great pain. I think of the wickedness, and that's what you can call it, the wickedness in Assyria at the moment. In Syria at the moment. Just, wow, what people can do to each other. The havoc and disorder that people can create. I think of the stories I've heard over many years as I've talked with families and and the things that people do to each other in families and the the challenges that they provide uh, and the way people hurt each other so deeply that it sometimes lasts a long lifetime. I also think of the disorder that takes place within the life of churches. We sometimes have this romantic notion of what church is like gathering together and all these people coming together and a beautiful community. Of course, that's a good thing. But in so many cases, we we do things and then we say things to each other that uh, are not that great and hurt as well. And so we live in a space where we can admire the order that God has set in place and yet we're also aware of the great disorder in our world and the great disorder in our relationships and, and what takes place. And as we've looked at the Corinthian church, what we've noticed is that 
There are all kinds of things going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul has to keep speaking into their situation because of the disorder that has been created. Right in the middle of our passage today, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. You might like to look it up. Uh, page 100 and, 1138. Page 1138 in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at this passage together this evening. And he says this, in the midst of all this disorder and all the things that are happening in the Corinthian church, he says this, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. God's desire for congregations, God's vision for congregations, for people gathering together, is people living at peace with one another, not in disorder. And so as Paul speaks to the, one, to the Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians, he's speaking to them about a God who wants order and who wants peace. This week I've had the opportunity just to reflect on that great passage in Colossians chapter 1 and to think about how God has brought about order in the midst of disorder. Look at these magnificent words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. It's a remarkable statement when you think about it. Whether things on earth and in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Speaking of all creation and all earth and all disorder, through Jesus' death on the cross, he is making peace. He goes on, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Just let this sink in for a moment. The God of the whole universe wants to make peace with you. You who, is, who were his enemy. You who were alienated from him. You who created disorder in his ordered world. And his desire to reconcile you to him is such that he sends his own son to die and to shed his blood on your behalf. No, I reckon the, to the extent that we understand that is to the extent that we wish to see that kind of order and peace and reconciliation within our churches and in our lives together. As we understand what God has done for us in Christ, in drawing us to himself, his enemies, as we are reconciled and we understand the nature of that reconciliation and what God has done to address the disorder in our world, as we come to understand that deeply and richly in our own lives, it starts to shape the way we deal with one another. 
and how we approach one another. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is approaching the Corinthian church in light of what Christ has done, in light of the fact that God is a God of order seeking peace. And he addresses some significant issues that are taking place. Now, last week, we saw that some of those issues involved tongues and prophecy. So the passage begins with tongues and prophecy. Come with me to verses 27 to 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep uh, keep quiet, or the word is be silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul is addressing the situation. People are speaking in tongues and Uh, This is one definition of tongues that I think is useful. The miraculous ability to speak an unlearned human and possibly divine or angelic um, languages. What he says is, if you're able to do that, I can't do it myself, but I know of others who do. If you're someone who does that, in terms of the order of the church and the way of keeping order and the way of doing things, Only two or three people should speak in a gathering, and if they are to speak, they must have someone who interprets, and otherwise they should keep quiet and to speak between themselves and God. Now the reason for that we've seen already in uh, chapter 14, and that is that what we use our gifts for is for the building up of one another, for the edification of one another. And so just speaking in tongues by yourself without an interpretation means that others are not built up and encouraged in the context of a church coming together. Now what's so interesting about this is that there's a great sense of order and thoughtfulness about this. And one of the challenges we have is we often think that when things are spontaneous and things are kind of experiential, They must be more spiritual. Uh, They could be spiritual, that's true, but this is saying the spontaneous is not necessarily more spiritual. This is considered, this is thought through, this is defining how to use the gift in the presence of other people. There must be an interpreter, there must be a procedure that is followed. It sounds almost like God's an Anglican with all the order that's involved. But there's a process involved. And so if you found yourself in that position, this would be the process to use when thinking about speaking in tongues. As I mentioned, the other big thing that Paul has been speaking about, and in fact emphasising within this chapter, he's saying the Corinthians have been a bit carried away with tongues. They've thought too much of them. What he'd prefer them to do is to prophesy. And he goes on and says this in the following verses. Two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is being said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first person speaker should stop or, the word is there, be silent. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject the control of the prophets. Once again, you see this order in place. 
If someone's to speak, it happens this way. Someone should stop. If someone else is going to planning to speak, um, and everyone should be uh, instructed and encouraged along the way. Now, there's many different ways to think about prophecy, and there's a huge discussion around exactly what it means. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about that tonight, but one definition I do like is this one. I think this is helpful, but this is not the only definition, and I recognize there's significant discussion around these things. A prophecy combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse, leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, which is actually what the first part of 1 Corinthians 14 talks about, but ultimately build the building up of addressees. There seems some way in which God is able to speak through certain people to congregations and to people in order that they might be comforted, judged, um, feel God's judgment, have consolation, those kinds of things. Now, once again, you see the situation. It's an ability. It's a God-given utterance. But once again, you see the situation that it is to take place with the thought that is in control of the prophets. And so there's a, there's a bit of a checking and a, and a balance here in terms of someone can't just get up and say something. There needs to be some thoughtfulness about it. Now, in some churches, I've heard of it working out this way. Someone says, I've got a prophecy that I would like to share with the church. And so the minister says to them, this is what I'd probably say to you, can you just go and write that down and have a think about it and come and we'll talk about it and see if it's appropriate to share with the whole congregation. Now, that seems a bit stilted, but we don't tend to do this terribly much in our congregations, and I think that might be a good way forward, or to share it with someone else in our congregation um, who's a leader, to think through whether this is the appropriate thing to do uh, to speak into other people's lives. I think Paul is giving us some sense of how this works I don't think he's describing it completely. And so I want to be a little bit careful with the definition that we've got there because there are other things to be said here and it's complicated. But if you feel like you have something that needs to be said to someone or said to our congregation, please check with us first and then we can think about how that actually works and what that means for us in our congregational life together. And if you've got further questions about that, please talk to me afterwards. Now, in some ways, what Paul says here kind of, okay, fair enough, that's what you do with tongues and that's what you do with prophecy. Almost as an aside, he says something else. And this is probably our most difficult bit within our passage. So, warning, warning. Um, this, will, you know, this is a difficult part of our passage. Paul goes on to say something else about the order that takes place within the life. Of the church. And once again, it includes these words, be silent. Okay, so we've had two be silents already. This is the third be silent. And this is what he says. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful or shameful for a woman to speak in the church. 
Now, I find that passage difficult for all kinds of reasons, and some of you will find it much more difficult than me, but I find it difficult because I love the strong women in my family who speak well. Uh, my, I married into a family of strong women. My grandmother-in-law was one of the first women to do pharmacy at Sydney University. And she remained a pharmacist all her life. Her husband did all the cooking and the cleaning and the looking after the kids. Really, really unusual. And I knew her and she knew how to speak her mind. I have a mum who ran away from home at 16 only to find herself in the mission, on the mission field in deepest, darkest Sarawak delivering babies, speaking the gospel into people's lives by herself often. And now in her 90s, she's still a very strong and independent woman, believe me. We're trying to work out how to care for her. My own daughter and my own wife are people who have a voice and I respect them greatly. And so I find this quite difficult. So one of the things we need to do at this point is Try and understand what Paul is doing here. Try and understand how this works. He's clearly been speaking about prophecy and tongues. And so there must be some kind of connection there. And so, let's follow this through and do some thinking about how this might actually work. Let's think about the biblical context as we come to these particular verses. In Joel chapter 2, we discover there's a prediction. There's a, pro there's a prophecy about prophecy. And it says this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Uh, there's a promise in Joel that in the future something will come in which both men and women will prophesy. When we come to Acts chapter 2, we discover that Peter... In speaking uh, full of the, as he's full of the Holy Spirit, says these words, he actually picks them up. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. He appropriates that prophecy and says, now is the time when this is to take place. Men and women will speak and prophesy. Now, a number of weeks ago, you might remember that we've already addressed this issue because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, we hear these words. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Now, in some ways, that just creates more difficulties for us. But when we looked at this, what we discovered was that it was a very important relationship between husbands and wives. And what had appeared to be happening in the Corinthian situation is that the way in which people were uh, going about their order together as a congregation meant that it appeared at times that, both, that women were not respecting their husbands in the way that they were speaking and what they were doing. And so Paul is addressing them and saying, Actually, you need to respect your husbands. Now, you notice there, it's interesting. It's about dishonouring at this point. There's a dishonouring that's taking place in the relationship. 
And you notice that kind of language when we come back to this passage. For it is disgraceful or shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So in some ways, I think what Paul is doing is picking up some of the same themes again as he speaks about these issues. He's clearly not forbidding women to prophesy in church because he's already said that. Otherwise, he'd be completely contradicting himself. What he is saying, though, is there's a certain order to things. And I think the clue is here. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. I think, once again, there is an issue of order. There's a question of the way husbands and wives are treating each other within the life of the church. And in whatever's taking place, and it's difficult to tell, can I say, it would appear that some women are speaking of their husbands in such a way or disrespecting their husbands in such a way that Paul has to say, look, you should ask your own husbands at home. You should ask those kinds of questions at home because the way they're being asked is disrespectful within the life of the church. Now, you still may find that quite difficult, but I think that's what Paul is saying. Speaking to husbands or wives about their relationships and the way, about the way they treat each other. Now, if that is the case, then we, need, we, we have some senses of the cultural situation. So we want to look at the biblical situation first and then think carefully about the cultural context. And one of the things we, we, we need to acknowledge is that in the culture of that day, women weren't used to speaking in public that often. And that was not something that actually happened frequently as people gathered together, particularly in mixed company. And so there may have been some misunderstandings about the way that that should be ordered, the way that should be done, the way people should treat one another in mixed company. What's also true is the physical context, um, is the physical context, and that is that people were often meeting in people's homes. And so it's very different to the way we meet here. And you could well imagine a situation as people had been sitting in people's homes of people shouting things across to each other, wives shouting to their husbands and asking them questions in the middle of a meeting, perhaps. And so you get this sense in which there's disorder, as there has been with tongues and with prophecy, in the way people are proceeding with each other in that context. The other thing to say here also in terms of the physical context is uh, in terms of Jewish tradition, men and women would sit apart. Uh, if you go to the Wailing Wall even today, you will notice that on one, there's one section for women and one section for men. Women are not allowed to go into the men's section. And so you could quite imagine the situation where men and women are sitting in different groups and wives are shouting out to their husbands questions about what is taking place. I think that's what Paul is uh, talking about in this situation here. He's not forbidding women to say, not to say anything in the life of the church. He's saying some things about that, but he's not forbidding it completely. Now, I recognise there's a full spectrum of views on this, and it's complex. I suspect in this room tonight, there are a whole range of different views about how to read and understand that. Please talk to me afterwards. I get that it's a vexed issue. 
I get that it's a difficult issue. What Paul says next feels like he understood our problem. He's actually speaking to their situation, but I actually think he speaks to our situation as well. Because this is what he says next. Did the word of God originate with you? Do you have problems with this? Is this difficult to swallow? Is this difficult to understand? Is this difficult to take on board? Sometimes as I've talked to people about this particular passage, they've said things to me like, well, they're only Paul's words. They're not really Jesus' words. And so we don't really have to take them as seriously. Or on other occasions, people have said to me, well, why don't we just remove this little bit from the Bible because it really is very, very uncomfortable. Paul's word to us at this point is, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Paul's wording there is quite strong. And what he's asking us to do is submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God. Now, the re- that, there are two implications of that. One of the implications is this. That if we start removing bits of the Bible and if we start doing things to the Bible to try and get around the difficult stuff, we actually don't let the Bible, God's word, God's words, shape and form us. We start becoming the authority. We start determining what God can say or can't say. And in fact, what we start doing is start forming our own God who can say particular things to us and not other things to us. And Paul's reminding us, actually, I'm speaking to you God's words. That's also important because in each context and each culture and each time, we need to learn what God's order is for this world. At different times in history and different places in this world, the Bible speaks into congregations in order that they might reflect the order that God intended. That's why we at this church, actually, often preach through a book. It would be easier to do topical sermons, can I tell you? Let's just pick the five topics that we really like and preach on them and then another five topics that we really like and do them. What preaching through a book like 1 Corinthians does is force you to actually look at and say, actually, God sets the agenda for the way we meet together. God's word is the thing that forms us and shapes us. So what we're going to do is actually take God's word as it is and look at it and let it shape us, even though it's tremendously uncomfortable at different times. Now, I know that at different cultures and different times, people have come to different conclusions. And so you might say, well, hang on, can't we get it wrong? Well, of course we can. But the reality is we need to keep bumping ourselves up against the word of God, listening to it, hearing it, applying it to our lives, understanding it deeply, speaking to one another in love and in fellowship with one another, listening to those who've gone before us, but ultimately submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word. 
even with difficult things like this. And why is that? Well, Paul finishes the passage by saying, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. It's been his whole point for the whole chapter, and he makes it in the last verse, and there it is. But why is this so important? Well, let's come back to that verse in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. It's important because God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He ordered the world in such a way that it's in a right relationship to the Son. He orders ourselves. He orders the spider's web. He orders this world and he knows how it best works. He also knows how his people best work, what it means for them to live together and to work together and to be his people. And he wants peace. He wants peace with his people. And he says the best way that that will happen is if you live according to my order. Now in some ways that's the most radical thing about this passage. Because over and over again we're being told live according to your own narrative, to your own order. And Paul is saying, reminding us, actually no, live according to God's order and the way he has designed this world. And he says this in a way that means we can be empowered by what Jesus has done. For we were once alienated from God, we were once enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled us to Christ by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.